This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, one of the Intellectual History Channel hosts. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Eric McGilvray, professor of political science at The Ohio State University. Professor McGilvray's research and teaching interests focus on modern and contemporary political thought with an emphasis on liberal, Republican, and democratic theory, as well as the pragmatic philosophical tradition. His scholarly journal articles have appeared in the American Journal of Political Science, the Journal of Political Philosophy, Political Theory, and Social Philosophy and Policy, among others. His first book was published in 2004, Reconstructing Public Reason, which was followed in 2011 by the invention of market freedom. But he joins us today to talk primarily about his latest, Liberal Freedom, Pluralism, Polarization and Politics, published this year by Cambridge University Press. The professor's latest book is relevant, clearly argued, and well-supported. His engaging narrative will appeal to a broad cross-section of NBN listeners across the disciplines, which seems fitting for the work of a wide-ranging political theorist interested in the applicability of ideas and the American pragmatic tradition. Professor McGilvray, Eric, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your writing and research. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that generous introduction. Eric, finally, good to talk with you. Let me let me start uh, by asking uh, you to share a bit about your scholarly influences and, and how you came to study uh, political theory. Oh, gosh, I came to study political theory kind of by accident. I took a course as an undergraduate um, one of these cases where a course had been canceled, I'd pick something up at the last minute, and I took an ancient medieval political thought class with uh, Professor George Kateb, who was just an incredibly charismatic um, and wise instructor who became my undergraduate advisor. And that sort of began a journey, um, which which led me to where I am today, that, that sort of initial chance encounter with the course catalog. Well, do you see yourself, Eric, um, more as political scientists, political theorists, or intellectual historian? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, th- I think I see my, I was trained by a philosopher really in graduate school. And so I think of myself as a political theorist um, of a kind of analytical bent. I think whatever added value I, uh, I bring to the study of politics comes from that set of skills. I, intellectual history was something I came to actually rather late as a scholar anyway. Um, I, I started to write a book about freedom about 15 years ago and um, was going to write a book about the ideas of the philosopher Philip Pettit, who I thought had a very interesting account of freedom as as non-domination, um, but who I didn't think I had a very good account of how markets fit into that picture of freedom as non-domination. And so I started writing a kind of 
you know, analytical book about non-domination and markets. And uh, there was a kind of line of argument that Pettit had that explained to his satisfaction what happened to Republican freedom, so to speak, in the, in the 19th century, such that it became an idea that one had to recover um, and kind of reintroduce to, to contemporary audiences. And I thought Pettit's story about why Republican freedom had died off wasn't a very good story. And so I thought maybe an early chapter in the book would be um, explaining why I thought that story wasn't good. And so I thought I'd put a section in, in an early chapter um, telling that, telling my version of the story. And that section grew into two sections. And then that section grew into three sections. And then <laughs> the game a chapter and then two chapters. And eventually I realized this is the book. The book is going to be this historical story about the emergence of market freedom in the modern period. And that became the book you mentioned before, the invention of market freedom. And much to my surprise, I had written a, a book about intellectual history, um, which is not something I ever thought I would do or that I was particularly trained to do. But I just learned an enormous amount doing it. Um, and then when I came to write the book that I intended to write in the first place, which is the book that we're talking about today, I had that new set of tools, that new set of historical um, uh, perspectives and, and um, um, influences to, to kind of guide me through this, um, this set of ideas. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and you, you kind of preempt some of the uh, next question I really wanted to ask, because I, I was going to say or ask, uh, Liberal Freedom is is the third book. As mentioned, uh, Reconstructing Public Reason was the first. And as you just explained, the invention of market freedom, your second, is really important in terms of your own development as a scholar. Um, what are some of the intellectual threads you've been weaving uh, throughout the, all, all three of the books? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in, in um, the idea of freedom and what it means to be a free person and to live in a free society. And I guess I would say the two questions that um, I, I'm a pragmatist, as you mentioned, so I think about things in terms of puzzles and problems that motivate somebody to, to study something or to think about something. And I I guess the two puzzles that motivated the second and third books, respectively, were, um, first of all, how did the market go from being a place where a person was paradigmatically unfree to being a place where a person is paradigmatically free? That's a kind of 180 degree um, shift in thinking about markets that happened sometime in the early modern period. Really interesting puzzle. Um, second puzzle is how did liberalism, um, which was a ideology that started, this is really the central puzzle of the current book, um, how did liberalism, which is an ideology that, that had its origins as a matter of ideological label in the early 19th century, become to be understood as an ideology that started in the 17th century with someone like John Locke and the social contract theorists? How did that kind of historical um, shift in the understanding of what liberalism stands for, what it means, both by liberals themselves and by their critics, um, take place? And really one of the central themes of liberal freedom is that we, we fundamentally misunderstand liberalism if we don't understand that it's a product of the 19th century and not of the 17th century. Well, you've touched on some of this already, um, but before we uh, leave your uh, earlier work, um, particularly the invention of market freedom, uh, it contrasts the market conception of freedom with the Republican notion it replaced. This is important uh, to your argument in liberal freedom. Can you talk a bit about how the value of freedom became linked with the market as an institution and why is it important to understand market freedom as an invention? Yeah. So the, the two features of markets that made them seem like sort of freedom threatening institutions prior to the modern period um, were on the one hand, the fact that markets involved you in activities that were thought to be threatening 
to individual virtues. So money making, competition, um, uh, kind of uh, trades, um, you know, not not the sort of um, loftier pursuits that, that a, a free gentleman was supposed to be engaged in. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, the fact that markets make us constitutively vulnerable to be in a market is to be uncertain about what's going to happen. And a, lot, a big a sort of central feature of the idea of Republican freedom is this idea of of control, collective control over social outcomes. So on both of those dimensions, markets were thought to be a kind of threat to Republican freedom. Um, and then the pivot that happens kind of in the second half of the 18th century is this sort of, on the one hand, a kind of uh, idea that there's a kind of virtue that can be realized in markets, virtues of business, like the Ben Franklin idea, virtues of frugality and industry and uh, prudence and, and um, you know, thinking about things from the your, your trading partner's perspective. Um, and then also that markets themselves can serve as a kind of check on what might otherwise be the unlimited power of the state. So markets come to play this kind of um, Republican-friendly role in the, in the minds of, of certain thinkers in the second half of the 18th century. And so there's this kind of interesting split that happens in the Republican tradition in the second half of the 18th century between kind of pro-market thinkers um, like David Hume and Adam Smith and sort of market-skeptical thinkers like uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau um, and the sort of <laughs> instability of that um, uh, of the Republican tradition as a result of that split gives rise to this new idea of market freedom as being sort of its own its own thing. Um, that's the that's the kind of pivot that I see happening again in this in sort of the early modern period prior to the emergence of liberalism, which is something that happens as a similar forward in the 19th century. Well, your latest book. Uh, clearly brings to bear some weighty topics uh, that you laid the groundwork for uh, previously, as as just mentioned. Um, you bookend, uh, so to speak, uh, liberal freedom with a prologue and conclusion that includes a series of vignettes, um, descriptions of moments in which individuals sense their actual freedom uh, to choose to be spontaneous. And, and you lay out your rationale, which argues that these moments are, and I quote, what we think about what freedom means as a political value. Can you talk a bit about how you came to the idea of the vignettes and, and why they're useful as representing moments of freedom in terms of political values? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's interesting. I mean, it, the, the vignettes are sort of literary in a way, and it was a kind of writing experiment for me to try to, to try to write something that had a kind of more of a literary quality. And I, I tried to put just enough detail into the vignettes that you could sort of imagine the scene, and then not quite enough detail that you couldn't put yourself into the scene. And that's sort of enough left vague that you could imagine it as a reader. You can imagine it as you like. Um, but the idea of the preface, right, is to kind of prime intuitions about what freedom can mean. Um, on both of the dimensions that I'm talking about. So the kind of central claim of the book is that freedom means uh, or freedom requires, on the one hand, creating the social conditions under which people can properly be held responsible for what they do. Um, so people aren't subject to things like ignorance or poverty or domination, which can kind of compromise our agency and our ability to be held responsible. That's what I call Republican freedom. And then on the, on the other hand, freedom means carving out a space, a social space, within which we aren't held responsible for what we do, within, within which we're non-responsible, um, as I put it, within which we're able to do things that have consequences for other people that we aren't publicly held accountable for. And that's what I call market freedom. And so really the preface is trying, before I even get to that argument, is trying to prime people's intuitions about how those freedoms 
fit together is sort of how they complement and how they um, challenge each other. So the first vignette is about driving down the highway on a, on a road trip and has no sort of set destination. They're kind of paradigmatically, maybe a paradigmatically American way of thinking about freedom. Um, other vignettes mm. uh, talk about receiving a random direct message in the middle of the night, deciding whether to respond, um, deciding to immigrate to another country, um, being a, a trader and a kind of financial exchange, these sort of moments where possibility and uncertainty and um, sort of starting anew um, are central themes. And then each, each vignette is paired with a kind of second half which shows how that kind of freedom can either literally or figuratively spin out of control. Um, so there's a car accident or the market crashes that the person is trading on, or the fact of immigration gives rise to political unrest and the, and the country people are immigrating to. And that is meant to get across this kind of two-faced notion of freedom that I'm working with throughout the book. On the one hand, this notion of individual possibility and, and sort of setting one's own terms. And on the other hand, the social infrastructure that makes that kind of action possible and that kind of is called into action when when the more market freedom, non-responsible freedom um, spins out of control. You, you talk a bit about the tension uh, between the demand for control and the spirit of spontaneity and right. um, this negotiation of boundaries. I, I found that interesting uh, between the political uh, and the non-political, this public-private divide. So this is the politics that you're setting out to defend. And it's interesting in a way to set it all up this way. And as you, as you said, in a literary way, it does have a kind of a theatricality to it. Well, thanks. I'm glad you feel that way. And then what I do in the conclusion of the book is sort of come back to those vignettes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, really the aim of the book is to provide a vocabulary. Is what I think liberalism does provide a vocabulary for talking about Foral and political disagreements, um, where because everybody recognizes we're striking a balance between these two competing values, um, even when we disagree, we can nevertheless see in the person we disagree with a set of values that, in some sense, we also um, endorse as a kind of commonality to it. And so the conclusion comes back to um, to the vignettes and casts them each as a kind of political conversation um, between two or more um, interlocutors who are who are <laughs> implicitly using the ideas of freedom that I've talked about throughout the book. To think about the kind of spinning out of control aspects of each of the vignettes that appear in the preface. So it's meant to kind of illustrate how political dialogue might go um, in this kind of liberal framework that I've laid out. And the, the, the conversations aren't easy and they're not they're not um, they don't come to clean resolutions, but it's meant to illustrate, again, how this this way of thinking about politics from a liberal point of view makes it possible to talk to each other across our disagreements in a way that we can find kind of mutually intelligible. No, I think it's uh, it's an effective I'm not sure if bookending is the right word, but but that seems appropriate. Um, well, all of this uh, comes before the reader uh, even gets to liberal freedom's introduction, uh, which really lays out the book's premises and provides an overview of the chapter contents. Um, you titled it by asking, why liberalism? Why freedom? It's a key part of the book that sets up the context for um, the broader arguments. And so just a quick mention of the first two titles to give listeners some idea of your framing. So your first subsection is the polarization problem. The second subsection is the justice paradigm. Before I ask you about the problem and the paradigm, I want to start with your epigraph 
uh, to open the introduction, which comes from Lionel Trilling's uh, 1950 collection of essays, The Liberal Imagination, uh, which reads a, a criticism which has at heart the interests of liberalism might find its most useful work not in confirming liberalism in its sense of general rightness, but in putting under some degree of pressure the liberal ideas and assumptions of the present time. Trilling's point about liberals needing to reflect on their own position for uh, weaknesses and complacencies is, is more interesting, too, uh, given the quote was Trilling's use of Mill encouraging readers to study Coleridge who, as uh, Trilling points out, was at odds with uh, liberals, and I quote, all down the intellectual and political line. So I, I bring it up and I mention it because I, I, th I found it really interesting back, uh, interesting backdrop for, um, well, the present time and the first section of your introduction, the problem of polarization. How do you explain the polarization problem and why is it significant to your argument concerning liberalism and freedom? You argue uh, that we need a moral vocabulary. Can you share a bit about why this is important to overcoming the problem? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot there. I mean, the book was written over a period, as we all know, when, when political polarization really became a central and, from my point of view, deeply worrying feature of politics, not only in the United States, but really in a lot of liberal democracies. Um, this this the sense of anger and mutual distrust, uh, misunderstanding, sometimes hatred um, that's really tearing or threatening to tear the fabric of a lot of liberal democracies altogether apart. So as a, as a citizen and as a believer in liberal democracy, this is deeply concerning to me. And, and it seems to me that, that if, if any political ideology should be equipped to teach lessons about how one can um, diffuse polarization and, and get people to talk to each other, it should be the liberal tradition, which is which is founded on ideas of toleration and inclusion and uh, dialogue and, and um, epistemic humility and all sorts of values like this that that really are inimical to the idea of polarization. But then it seemed to me, and this is this is why I use the trilling quote, although, of course, our context is different from his. It seemed to me that academic liberalism was part of the problem and not part of the solution. Um, mm. And so really what I'm trying to do in the book is to recover what I think is a truer account of what liberals have historically stood for. Um, because I think that account can be deployed in a way that would really be constructive in our in our current political moment. But, I mean, polarization has a lot of causes. I run through some of them quickly at the beginning of the introduction. I, I wouldn't claim to to have a kind of um, clean sociological account or, or political account of why polarization is happening. For me, as a, again as a pragmatist, the question is how do we respond to this problem? Um, what what ideological resources can we bring to bear? And for me, as a as a political theorist and an intellectual historian, you know, I'm I'm looking for resources in the history of political thought and the liberal tradition that I think could do some of that work. I don't pretend to have a complete solution, obviously, but but I'd I'd like to be part of the solution and not not part of the problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, in the summer of uh, 2021, the uh, the writer George Packer adapted an article from his book uh, Last Best Hope: America in Crisis and Renewal. And the, the article w was titled How America Fractured into Four Parts. Uh, people in the United States no longer agree on the nation's purpose, values, history or meaning. Uh, is reconciliation uh, possible? For, for listeners who may have missed it or only vaguely recall its content, the, the article's subtitle provides the research question, so to speak. 
uh, for our purposes. Um, that is, how can people in the United States who, who do not agree on the nation's purpose, uh, values, history, and meaning uh, be, be reconciled? So I'm not trying to, to, to pin you down on polarization or Packer's argument here, but Packer's argument, or the article anyways, rests on four narratives uh, that divide society into somewhat overlapping segments of free America, smart America, real America, and just America. And I realize that doesn't give listeners much to go on. So I'll put a link in, uh, to the Atlantic article on the NBN uh, webpage for this interview uh, for those uh, who are interested. Um, there's a caricatured aspect to these kinds of generalizations to some extent, for sure. Uh, but Packer uh, strikes me as an astute observer and develops his narratives uh, quite thoroughly uh, in the article. Eric, I, kn I know you read the Packer piece uh, when it was published, and the details are, are less a concern, but I, I thought of it when reading your section on the problem of polarization, in part because it, too, highlights this inability or unwillingness uh, to communicate honestly or fairly about politics with uh, those whom we disagree. In other words, uh, on one level at least, uh, what we have here is a, a failure uh, to communicate, as they say. And, and right. part of your response, right, to the polarization problem, as you posted, involves reconsidering uh, communication as a kind of sharing. Can, can you explain your thinking there in terms of political communication and what, if any, parallels you see with your approach in relation to Packer's question about reconciliation and his depiction of the uh, state of American society? So I, I confess that I haven't read Packer's book. I did read the Atlantic piece uh, when it came out, and I, I looked it over um, before this conversation. Um, and I, uh, my take on the article is it's more the statement of a problem than the, than the proposal of a, of a solution. What I find interesting about Packer's sort of fourfold um, division of American um, culture, political culture, is that two of the poles are ideological and two of them are cultural. Um, so you have free America and just America, which just to be even cruder than he is, you know, sort of a libertarian bent in American political culture, and then a kind of more social justice oriented bent in America. Those are those are kind of ideological poles of a certain kind. Um, and then you have what he calls smart America and real America, which are, you know, roughly speaking, the kind of cosmopolitan, highly educated um, urban elite and, and the kind of professionals and so on. And then the kind of working class um small town, small city, non-coastal kind of um, uh, Christian uh, white culture. Um, and so it, it strikes me that that's, that's really a two-dimensional analysis where you have an ideological divide on the one hand and a, and a cultural divide on the other. And, and the work my book is trying to do is to get us to see that neither of the ideologies um, suffices on its own. Um, of course, there's a place for social justice and for, for collective efforts to realize social justice um, in any liberal society. And that's going to require some kind of collective effort and some kind of collective agreement um, on what the aims of, of social justice policy would be. But of course, a society that only cared about social justice and that ignored the fact that we agree about what social justice is or what it requires would be stifling um, and, and probably in the end authoritarian. Um, so we need to have some space in political culture for 
individual freedom to live one's life as one sees fit without being bound by collective decisions about um, what the proper aims of government ought to be or what the proper aims of individual life ought to be. So I, my, on, the, on the ideological dimension, the, the goal of the book, again, is to see that we're always balancing these two things against one another. We're always balancing the claims of collective responsibility for social outcomes on the one hand and the sort of space for individual non-responsibility on the other. Hopefully that makes the two ideological poles intelligible to each other. And then the harder question, of course, is the sort of cultural divide, um, which how do we get, as he puts it, smart America, real America to talk to each other? And, you know, it's easier to say than to do, but it requires a kind of ability to inhabit the perspective of somebody else, to think about things from their point of view, to to be respectful, um, to, to respect the dignity of people who who live differently and think differently and value different things than you do, which has always, of course, been a liberal value. And again, my hope, my contribution to this very hard problem, which is only a partial contribution, is that by having a moral vocabulary that everybody can sort of use and understand will be a tool um, that could be used in, in having those kinds of conversations. It's too easy for for libertarians to be utopian about markets and to say, well, anybody who doesn't get on board with this sort of project of um, of liberty understood as a certain kind of um, you know market-centered project is just wrong and their preferences can be overridden. The market you know, regime can be imposed on them by fiat. And equally so, it's you know somebody who, who thinks they have the correct ideas about social justice and anybody who disagrees with them is is properly overridden or shouted down or not listened to. Um, the same kind of pathology can exist on that side. Um, so really a, a, an appeal to, to charity, to mutual intelligibility, to dialogue, um, that's the kind of central central goal of the book. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for, for sharing your thoughts on, on that. There, there is, um, like I say, a kind of a caricatured, uh, element to that, uh, to that article is as interesting as, uh, I think the narrative, um, is, hey, let me move on here. Uh, this problem of polarization and, uh, or at least of language, right. As it relates, uh, to a shared vocabulary of communication, um, it seems to relate back to your earlier work in the invention of market freedom, which in turn builds toward your explanation of liberalism, as you put it, um, the political ideology that holds Republican and market freedom together in a single political vision, um, defines their respective limits and seeks to maintain a fruitful tension between them. And as you alluded to already, I've left much out of this oversimplification here, but was hoping to provide you a prompt uh, to help transition uh, listeners from polarization uh, to the next issue that frames your argument. That is uh, what you refer to as uh, the justice paradigm. Can, Can you explain the importance of this section in terms of your broader argument, how it relates to language and discourse and and why? Liberalism is too important to be left to the Rawlsians, as you put it. Right. So so one of the central claims of the book is that there was a kind of a sea change in liberal political thought, um, beginning, roughly speaking, with, with John Rawls's seminal book, A Theory of Justice, which appears in 1971. Um, and Rawls sets out as Rawls begins by saying that, that justice is, as he says, the first virtue of social institutions and that, that, that the aim of a of a liberal society, maybe the necessary starting point of a liberal political philosophy, should be to identify principles of social organization that all reasonable people would accept. Um, so this is the work that Rawls's famous original position on the Veil of Ignorance does in yielding his his famous two principles of justice. Um, and so 
this this accomplishes two things um, or two two changes in liberal thought as 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 they've been understood up to that point. The first is putting justice rather than freedom um, as the first um, virtue of social institutions. The word liberalism, of course, is derived from the word liberty, and liberals have always, up until Rawls, taken freedom to be the first um, the first virtue. Um, freedom in this sort of complicated two dimensional sense that I've been talking about. And on the other hand, this notion that we have to begin from a standpoint of agreement that all reasonable people would accept. Um, of course, nobody's ever ever found that point of agreement, and it's a it's a way of approaching political philosophy that that creates a sort of awkward um, rhetorical position where you're basically declaring anybody who disagrees with you to be sort of ipso facto unreasonable, and that seems to be a very unpromising and indeed illiberal way to think about politics. Um, politics, to my mind, is constitutively about disagreement, disagreement about fundamental moral matters, and the question of how we work together in the face of that kind of disagreement. So the idea of starting from a standpoint of reasonable agreement, or taking that, as, again, as the necessary starting point of political philosophy, seems to me non-constructive and, and again, in, in, at odds with what the liberal tradition had been understood to be up to that point. So this, this is where the intellectual history becomes important. Rawls, of course, is working very self-consciously in the social contract tradition, really recovering that tradition for the 20th century after about 200 years of which it had been pretty much set aside. And so he's looking back to thinkers like Kant and Locke as the, so to speak, the real liberals. Um, Kant and Locke, neither of whom would have called themselves liberals because the word liberal wasn't an ideological label uh, at the time they were writing in the 17th, 18th centuries. Um, and then sort of skipping over what's, what's to my mind, the real liberal tradition, which starts in the early decades of the 19th century, roughly with the post French Revolution, Benjamin Constant, people like that, and runs through people like Tocqueville, Mill, the British social liberals, um, John Dewey, um, Isaiah Berlin, and so on. Um, that tradition sort of gets set aside in the Rawlsian framework in favor of this contractarian view, which is just anachronistic to call to call liberal, um, because those thinkers wouldn't have called themselves liberals. The, the word wasn't available to them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, you... Um you mentioned uh, some of the intellectual connections, and as you were talking, I thought of your epigraph for uh, Iris Murdoch, and she dedicated at least one of her pieces to Stuart Hampshire. And uh, you know, he he wrote that piece called uh, "Justice as Conflict" or "Justice is Conflict," and yeah. Again, right, I suppose, in the in in the heart of what you're talking about, when justice um, really prevails as the um, the moniker of, of choice. But let me uh, step back a, a bit here. I, I hope uh, I've been able to uh, help you convey to listeners um, through the vignettes and whatnot, just how interestingly uh, you've laid out your book organizationally. Uh, in helping to capture the interest and attention of readers uh, from the again from the importance and uh, of the opening of the vignettes uh, in the prologue to their closure uh, as you mentioned in the conclusion and the erudition uh, in the progression of ideas uh, that allows for the kind of nuanced epigraphs that start the book the learned hand iris murdoch as well as the chapters uh lionel trilling as mentioned uh, to John Stuart Mill, uh, Hannah Arendt, John Hicks, Charlotte Bronte, and uh, James Madison. And while uh, epigraphs and uh, vignettes are, are just rhetorical devices, <clears throat> really, in, in lesser hands, my, my point is just that you've set the stage for really your more developed lines of reasoning uh, within the contents 
of the five main chapters, uh, which I'd like to ask you about now, uh, starting with the first, um, free actions and free persons. Um, why is the first chapter a key to your broader argument? Can you give us a sense uh, of the conceptual clarity you claim to gain by treating freedom not as a property of one's actions, uh, but rather as a property of persons? Um, what does that mean? And, and what's the advantage here uh, in terms of a liberal conception of free actions and free persons uh, as you've titled the chapter. And and again, I realize there's a, there's a lot there. Don't expect you to, uh, you know, give us an answer in 10 words or less. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for the generous words. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, so the, the, the big move that chapter one makes, as the title of the chapter suggests, is to to get us to think about freedom as a property, not of actions, but of persons, which actually is the more traditional way of thinking about freedom as a political value in the history of, of political thought. So what I'm trying to do really is get away from what I think of as a kind of unhelpful way of thinking about freedom, which is to start by asking the question, well, to what extent am I constrained? Freedom means me not being constrained. Freedom means me being able to do more things. Um, um, in other words, freedom is a, is a, is a question of the actions um, or a function of the actions that I'm able to, to perform. And that strikes me as a kind of conceptually unhelpful way of starting a conversation about freedom. First of all, because we're always constrained in whatever we do. Um, and um, so so what one has to do in, in that sort of framework of thinking is to stipulate that certain kinds of constraints just don't count as freedom reducing, maybe unintentionally imposed constraints or non-human imposed constraints or, you know, constraints that one has a right to impose or things like this sort of ad hoc um, limitations on what what the word constraint can properly mean from a political point of view. And then on the other hand, of course, <laughs> actions aren't all created equal, you know, the, as, as the philosopher Charles Taylor pointed out. Um, traffic lights um, constrain my freedom, and so do, so do um, bans on practicing my religion. But of course, my inability to, to cross an intersection whenever I want is nowhere near as significant as my ability to, to worship as I please. So we have to make qualitative distinctions among the actions we're able to perform in order to think properly about um, what freedom means. And the, the kind of action-centered way of thinking, to my mind, doesn't really do a very good job of, of making those kinds of distinctions. So what does it mean to think about freedom from the standpoint of, of persons? Well, again, in history of political thought, the, the word freedom as a political value referred to a status that a person held. So to be a free person was to be a citizen, um, to have some sorts of um, claims to um, consideration and to, to having a voice and determination of how public affairs are going to be run, um, to have a kind of status among one's other free peers. Um, and, of course, in pre-modern times, to have a kind of position to be able to dominate unfree people, slaves, women, working class people, the poor, um, foreigners, um, and so on. So so freedom meant having a, a privileged social status and the kind of um, rights and responsibilities that went with holding that status um, uh, and, and wasn't simply a function of sort of how many things you were able to do, how unconstrained you were. In fact, the, the ethical constraints that came with free status were quite constraining often. So I'm playing with that um, Republican kind of having a voice in the collective control of one's um, affairs, self-government, if you like. That's that's one kind of person-centered conception of freedom that's important from a liberal point of view. And the challenge in the modern period is the extension of that Republican form of citizenship in principle to all adult people, uh, which, which sort of changes the, the face of things in a lot of interesting ways, which I can mm -hmm. talk about later if you're interested. Um, but I'm coupling that with another kind of privilege status that a person can hold, which is the privilege of, ha of not being responsible for what you do. 
the privilege, as I say, in a market to impose costs on other people without their having any say in the matter, to raise the price of certain goods, to fire somebody, to express opinions that they find offensive or, um, or disturbing, to to criticize them in the ways that they may find uncomfortable. Um, so market freedom in kind of the broad sense in which I talk about it consists in this ability to impose costs on other people, which is a privileged status that we grant to people in various domains, always limited, um, but which is no less a matter of sort of social privilege um, than the privilege of being a kind of equal citizen. Um, so it's really, to my mind, we're always constrained in what we do. And the question is, uh, is the nature of the constraints that we face something that we sort of take collective responsibility for, say, in the form of law um, or, or um, you know, public regulation or whatever? Or are the constraints these sort of more informal, unregulated constraints that we impose on each other whenever we act as social creatures? The constraint that I know that if I do X, the people around me will react to that in a certain way. And I, I, I you know, shape what I decide to do based on my expected costs and benefits of acting or not acting in a certain way. That's no less a constraint than the constraint. Sometimes it's a more powerful constraint um, than the constraints that law may mm. impose on um, so either way, I'm constrained. And the question is, what status do I hold? Do I hold the status of somebody who can sort of um, um, have a say in how those constraints function? Or is my status simply to be able to act as I please and other, people's bear the, other people bear the costs um, as they fall? Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I, as much as I resist um, proceeding linearly uh, through chapters, <laughs> in, in this case, I, I, I think it works uh, given the, the way um, you, you've laid things out. Um, chapter two, and again, you, you may feel uh, you can kind of dance around what you've, you've already uh, shared with us, but chapter two is titled uh, Republican Freedom. It looks at the relationship uh, you understand well, of course, uh, that of Republican freedom and the market. And in it, you do this through the work of the political philosopher Philip Pettit. Um, this is an interesting chapter, um, especially for listeners who may be familiar with Pettit's work, including some of his more uh, recent, such as uh, Just Freedom and uh, On the People's Terms. A Republican theory and, and model of democracy. Uh, just as an aside, uh, but what amounts, I think, uh, to significant uh, recognition of your second book, uh, The Invention of Market Freedom, uh, Pettit references it in Just Freedom as the uh, go-to source, right, for the history of Republican attitudes to markets. Uh, so well done there. And uh, you really are in some um, scholarly, some good scholarly company or significant uh, scholarly company, I should say, from Amartya um, Sen to Gerald Cohen to Martha Nussbaum and, and James Coleman, among others. So let me ask you, what, what is it about Pettit's work? And you had mentioned him early on, uh, but what is it about his work on the concept of freedom and Republican thought that you find useful for your argument in this book, and that's distinct in its own right. Yeah, so I mean, it's funny. Chapter two is is in many ways a critique of Pettit, but I but I should acknowledge, as you suggest, an enormous debt to Pettit because it's really his ideas that got me thinking along these lines um, in the first place. So it's and he's, as you say, generously cited my own work um, uh, in in his more recent books. Um, so Pettit, like me, holds a person centered conception of freedom, where freedom means a kind of um, um, security against arbitrary interference um, on the part of other people. Um, so freedom is a kind of status one holds that allows one to look other people in the eye without fear 
without deference, um, without having to sort of um, cringe and bow and censor oneself because one fears the kind of repercussions that might result if one stepped out of line. So, so I think the real power of Pettit's view is to get us to recognize that there's forms of interference in a person, forms of constraint on action that can be, as he says, non-dominating, non-freedom reducing, which are the forms in which we have some say, some control over what form those constraints take. And there's forms of non-interference that can be dominating. There's, there's cases where I can not be literally constrained, but be under the threat of constraint from a dominating actor. I can fear that if I you know, did X, my boss or my spouse or, or the government or whatever would, would sanction me in a way that I can't control. Um, and therefore, I sort of preemptively censor myself, my own actions, maybe my own character are fundamentally distorted by the presence of that dominating or arbitrary power. I find that to be a really powerful way of thinking about freedom again, because it places the focus on this this status that one holds or doesn't hold of being protected or shielded from the from the uh, practice of arbitrary power or domination. Um, so, in the question I raise in chapter two is, do markets dominate us in that sense? Um, Pettit argues that markets don't dominate us in that sense because markets are sort of non-intentional uh, institutions or non-intentional actors. So, when markets constrain us, nobody in particular. Is constraining. It's just a sort of the outcome of these these forces that um, that nobody um, controls or directs. And so the, the feeling of being dominated by a market isn't the same as the feeling of being dominated by a person, um, because there isn't the sort of personal um, or interpersonal dimension to it. Um, I argue to the contrary, and other people have argued this as well, that markets do dominate us because the kind of salient feature of domination is this vulnerability. And even though markets themselves aren't intentional agents, the decision to allow a market to make a person vulnerable is an intentional decision. We allow or don't allow markets to operate in certain domains as a matter of public policy. We regulate markets to a greater or lesser extent as a matter of public policy. And so when an individual finds themselves in a market and vulnerable and fearful of what the market might, so to speak, do to them, that is a, a decision that's been made by an intentional agent, a government or whatever, um, to allow that kind of vulnerability to to exist. So I, I take it to be a matter of a public concern from a Republican point of view, whether markets exist and to what extent they're allowed to, and under what conditions they're allowed to operate. Um, so, so the kind of bottom line conclusion of chapter two is yes, markets dominate, um, but the effort to, you know, eliminate um, or overregulate markets would would um, bring other important social costs. Um, and so, again, from a liberal point of view, and this is where I break with the Republican point of view, which treats non-domination as the kind of maximand as the kind of sole or primary political value, I say, no, there are these two political values that are in tension. There's the value of non-domination, the value of Republican freedom, and then there's the value of market freedom, the value and be released from the demands um, or the responsibilities of collective of collective control over, over social outcomes. It kind of leads or transitions uh, nicely to the next chapter in which I, I, I feel like the political economist in all of us should find uh, chapter three, Market Freedom, uh, its title of particular interest. And, and while some may uh, disagree with its implications, uh, the argument is a key support for liberal freedoms of broader framework and orientation. And in some respects, I, I feel like it brings us back to language and meaning uh, in terms of the definition of what constitutes a market in the first place. Can you talk to us uh, about the role of this chapter and how it supports your person-centered conception of freedom? Yeah, so really the, the key claim of chapter three, which 
which maybe I haven't clearly articulated in the conversation so far, is that markets, in my sense, are not only or even necessarily primarily commercial markets. And this is where my own terminology is kind of um, new and maybe confusing to some some readers. Um, so a market for me is just any domain of behavior in which people aren't held publicly or collectively responsible for the consequences of what happens. So you know, public debate um, or, or even uh, private debate is a, is a market in my sense. Traffic patterns are a market in my sense. Uh, ch- you know, child rearing, family reproduction, all that sort of thing is a market in my sense. Uh, domains of behavior, in other words, in which people are, make decisions about what to do in the face of social constraints, as I've, as I've said, but in a way in which nobody in particular is held responsible for what the ultimate consequence um, will be. Um, so the so market ends up being a much broader term, much more all-encompassing term for non-responsible action. And the question is, why do we permit these non-responsible um, domains of behavior to exist? Why do we permit people to, to impose costs on other people um, without their having any say in the matter? And in a way, the heart of chapter three is this, this sort of long section in the second half where I lay out 16 possible reasons, <laughs> 16 different possible reasons that one might have for allowing non-responsible choice um, in a given domain, um, some of which will be familiar to people who are familiar with like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, defenders of commercial markets, um, but some of which don't have anything to do with that defense. Um, and so the question of how markets are regulated and when markets are allowed to exist in the first place really is a matter of which reasons we think we have for allowing markets um, to operate. Um, and those reasons are, are many um, and complicated, complementary sometimes, conflicting and sometimes. Um, and, and so the question of, again, whether and when markets exist is a kind of complicated question, um, which which is, is something that's pro- appropriately a matter of public debate. Well, thanks for, for, for talking a bit about that and, and mentioning your uh, 16 uh, uh, thesis posted on the, uh, the, the, the <laughs> church. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, anyways, so kidding about that. So chapter four. Um, titled the the liberal tradition, I think will be read closely uh, and with much interest, uh, given its application of the freedoms uh, both Republican and market, as uh, liberal freedom describes them. And in a way, uh, or I guess more than just in a way, it it is kind of an origin story, so to speak, of liberalism. Can you explain a bit about how you describe the collapse of the traditional hierarchies? and the rise of equality, and then what is meant in terms of democratization, uh, industrial capitalism, and our selective narratives of liberalism's intellectual history. And and again, I know there, there, there's a lot there. You can uh, work with it as, as you see fit. Yeah, so this is getting back to what I said before about the what I think of, of as a kind of mistaken understanding of the liberal tradition that rises out of this kind of Rawlsian contractarian point of view, according to which the founding liberal was John Locke and and the kind of key liberals are Locke, Kant, and Rawls, um, and sort of people who don't fit that contractarian paradigm very well, like Tocqueville or Mill or Isaiah Berlin or whatever, kind of hold an uncertain uh, position. Um, and to me, that gets things exactly backwards. Again, the first thinkers to call themselves liberals were writing in the early 19th century. Um, there's, a, there's a continuous strand of liberal thinkers that runs from the beginning of the 19th century through the middle of the 20th centuries who are who are very who disagree on a lot of things that are self-consciously working within a common tradition responding to each other building on each other's ideas um and so on so the key kind of key claim of chapter four is that 
the motivating problem that, that, that brought liberalism into existence was, as you just mentioned, the collapse of social hierarchies um, over the course of the 19th and 19th and 20th centuries. And it's it's easy to sort of <laughs> forget how how profound a change um, this this brought about. Um, you know, monarchies and hereditary aristocracies were overthrown or had their powers dialed back. Um, political and ecclesiastical authority were separated. Uh, property qualifications for the suffrage were removed. Women were given the suffrage. So you had, you had universal adult suffrage, suffrage by the middle of the 20th century. Uh, slavery is abolished. Colonies win their independence. Um, democracy goes from being a kind of term of abuse to being a kind of basic test of political legitimacy. All of that happens in a kind of 100, 150 year period um, and just profoundly reshapes um, the political landscape. And liberalism was an effort, not the only effort, to respond to that development when when suddenly being equal is not a kind of hypothetical premise as it was for John Locke, but an actual kind of real social fact and raised all kinds of real social challenges. Um, so the way I talk about it in the chapters is kind of two separate but overlapping um, stages. Um, this is kind of stylized. You know, one is what I call democratization. Here I, I rely heavily on Alexis de Tocqueville, this notion that in um, democracies as we as we now have them um political power both becomes harder to control and harder to avoid um because now you have these states that can claim to speak on behalf of the people as a whole um that don't speak on behalf of a privileged class but on behalf of everyone and you have this new thing called public opinion and the new organs like mass media and so on of public opinion that as both Tocqueville and Mill said have a kind of um can have a chilling effect on an individual's ability to sort of think and speak for themselves. Um, so, so this is what motivated early liberal thinkers to try to emphasize the importance of carving out a social space and creating the social conditions, the social infrastructure that makes it possible for there to be pluralism, diversity, um, innovation, um, and so on. So, so their their commitment to a kind of free economy, their commitment to a robust pluralistic civil society, Tocqueville's work on voluntary associations, for example, and commitment more generally to kind of pluralism and toleration in the public sphere um, in domains of religion, um, uh, uh, philosophy and ideas more, more generally. So that's kind of the first move is this, this recognition of democracy as both this sort of opportunity and this challenge. Um, to social progress. And then the second thing, of course, is the rise of industrial capitalism um, starting in the 19th century, which, again, liberals um, uh, were at first enthusiastic supporters of because they saw it as a kind of way of getting past the constraints of feudalism, but quickly came to recognize starting around mid-century that it also proposed, proposed profound challenges to individual freedom and indeed individual well-being. Um, just the, it's hard, again, it's easy to forget um, how terrible life was um, for factory workers and and others um, in the early decades of, of um, industrial capitalism. And so here you see liberals deploying the idea of freedom to defend a lot of things that are completely familiar to us now, you know, the kind of socialization of essential public infrastructure, roads, um, utility systems, um, communication systems, and so on. Um, social insurance programs for unemployed people, for the elderly, for um, disabled people, uh, of course, regulation of, of production, of workplace conditions, consumer safety regulations, um, regulations on conditions of work like like minimum wage, maximum hours laws. Um, this is the period when you get free and compulsory schooling for children. So people are, are you know educated and not vulnerable to domination out of out of a kind of lack of um, education. Um, you get antitrust laws, pro-union laws. 
Um, you get progressive income tax. All these sorts of policies come in in the sort of second half of the 20th century, 19th century, early part of the 20th century as a way of creating, uh, you know, <laughs> the conditions of self-government, the conditions of responsible choice in the face of this new economic challenge that industrial capitalism posed. And so John Stuart Mill is an early person to be thinking about these things. Um, and then the British social liberals, T.H. Green, L.D. Hobhouse, J.A. Hobson, others, and of course, John Dewey in the United States, um, all are kind of using liberal ideas to to respond to this, this challenge of um, vulnerability and um, subjugation that people were experiencing as a result of industrial capitalism and, and um, the kind of new economic conditions of life in, the, in, in that in that period. So that's a kind of two-step <laughs> where first liberals are, are emphasizing carving out a space for individual choice, again, and on the other hand, recognizing a need for public regulation where there hadn't been such so strong a need before. And liberalism has always sought to balance um, these two things. And that's, again, kind of the heart of the book is to show that even the most socialistic liberals still recognize the value of individuality. And even the most individualistic liberals recognize the need for some kind of public regulation to put some some guardrails on what can happen to people. And you've uh, you mentioned that uh, tension in a few places. Well, you you bring the argument back to to the present moment in chapter five. Chapter five is liberalism and the problem of polarization. Can can you make the case uh, for us a hey, why a freedom centered liberalism? And I realize you've been doing that already. Uh, is the best response uh, to polarization uh, in terms of the tools it offers and how then you differentiate between authoritarians and utopians and and where this uh, may leave us? Yeah, so, you know, polarization arises, obviously, from from disagreement. Um, and, the, and the question of, of politics really is, is how do we manage disagreement? Um, how do we how do we? Uh, turn it in constructive directions as opposed to non-constructive directions. Um, and so chapter five is really an effort to take some of the critiques of liberalism that are that are prominent in the public sphere now and really have been prominent since liberalism first existed um, and try to show how the, the freedom-centered liberalism that I develop over the course of the book does a better job of responding to those critiques um, than the, the, the justice paradigm, as I call it in the introduction, um, the side with Rawls does. Um, and really, again, the heart of it, as I've, as I've said a couple of times, is, is to recognize that if we're always striking a balance and never, never completely satisfying and certainly never a completely fixed balance between these two values, um, which I hope that everybody can in some sense recognize and embrace, then there, there, there's created a kind of space um, for dialogue, for change over time, for constructive engagement across lines of disagreement that, that doesn't exist when you start from the premise that, well, I know what justice requires. And if you disagree with me, then... Um, then you should be, if, if possible, silenced, um, which is, a, to, to my mind, a kind of fundamentally authoritarian way of thinking about politics. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really the, the work that chapter is trying to do in broad strokes. Well, there's so much uh, more uh, that we could talk about, including the politically engaged uh, key thinkers um, uh, that are central to your argument in Chapter 4. Constant, uh, Tocqueville, Mill, Green, Hobhouse, Hobson, Dewey, you've, you've mentioned them. Uh, let's uh, save this, uh, this for, for a more in-depth discussion, I suppose, of, of liberal freedom uh, for another day. So listeners can gain a, a better understanding of your arguments, uh, progression and sources and how in parts um, you've built upon the research in your second book, The Invention of uh, Market Freedom. 
so so you have kind of a, a, a trilogy here of, of book material, um, and we've not even talked about your journal articles or their focus, which leads me to um, this kind of um, awkward way of asking, hey, what are you working on these days? Yeah, well, I've, I've been thinking about freedom kind of nonstop for about 15 years now, and I, I, I finished this book and decided it was time to think about something else for a bit. So I'm right now I'm working on two shorter pieces um, that are that are a bit afield from from the themes of this book. One is a, a piece on Herman Melville, actually, the novelist, um, and nice. the, the role of Thomas Hobbes's ideas in his his posthumously published novella, Billy Budd, Sailor, um, which has been really fun to sort of dive into Melville himself and to the literature on Melville and I think I'm onto something in terms of what his influences may have been, what ideas he was working with in writing that famous and politically interesting novel, Billy Budd. Um, and that, 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 as I said, Hobbes has a kind of key role to play in the background of that story. Um, and then less far along is, a, is another sort of shorter piece I'm working on, on, on John Locke's use of the figure of Jephthah um, and then the appeal to heaven by Jephthah in the book of Judges um, at a sort of key moment or a couple of key moments in the second treatise on government. Um, so as I say that out loud, I realize I'm writing two pieces about contractarian thinkers, <laughs> having written <laughs> critique of contractarianism. So maybe this is some kind of penance. Um, and then in the back of my mind, I have a book on democratic theory in mind, sort of um, on the question of whether democracy can be justified in part because it's a a, a good way of getting at, so to speak, the right answers. Um, it's a kind of epistemic value, as people say, um, um, to democracy and you know, I'm skeptical about the the idea that that's the best way to think about justifying democracy, but I don't quite know what I think, which is why I want to write a book about it and kind of, you know, figure out what I think um, in the course of writing, which is sort of how I usually go about writing books. Um, so those, those are the three things I guess I would mention in terms of what's on my what's on my table at the moment. Sure, and and all sound uh, uh, sound interesting. Um, really do strike me as um, more intellectual historian, and uh, hope we can discuss uh, more down the road. Your your current book, uh, Liberal Freedom, uh, draws on on many uh, primary and secondary sources. Um, do you have a few book recommendations for listeners interested in complementing your intellectual and historical approach? Uh, to the study of liberalism and the concepts of uh, political theory more broadly? Yeah, it's hard to narrow down. I mean, everything sort of leads to everything else, and there are so many important um, <laughs> figures and figures who have, who have uh, shaped my thinking on these issues. I mean, I guess I'm tempted to sort of name three three pairs of books, which, depending on a listener's interest, might you know appeal to them for different reasons. So the first pair is two, two pairs of books by sort of contemporary political philosophers. You've already mentioned Philip Pettit, who, as I've said, is sort of the reason why I got interested in these ideas in the first place, probably the best place to start for his ideas is his recent book, Just Freedom, which is a the title contains a kind of double entendre that we should just be thinking about freedom when we think about politics and that freedom, as he understands, it gives rise to a kind of um, idea about justice. Um, so I think Just Freedom by Pettit um, is a nice, crisp introduction to his um, point of view. And then a kind of complementary book to that, which which is more um, uh compatible with my thinking about markets and freedom is Elizabeth Anderson's book, Private Government, um, which is about domination that, that people experience in the workplace and the kind of invisibility of that domination to um, contemporary in contemporary politics and to some, to some extent in contemporary political philosophy. It's a really nice, again, a crisp book that shows both how markets can be liberating and how markets, as they kind of be understood in the later 20th century, are in many respects um, dominating um, really sharp books. That, that's for the political philosophers in the audience. Um, 
for the historians of political thought, I'm tempted mm-hmm. to recommend um, sort of two uh, classics. One is, I mean, your, your listeners, I'm sure, know Mill's book on liberty, which is a great book. Um, I think to get a sense of uh, a broader sense of Mill's thought and the kind of his efforts to think through the challenge of the 19th century, um, his book um, Considerations on Representative Government, which appears two years later, is in a way a better introduction to his ideas. Um, you just will find things they don't like in there. There's Mill's qualified defense of colonialism, which also appears on liberty, is, is, is gets a chapter. Um, More votes for educated people gets a chapter. Um, but I think if you look at it as a kind of historical document of how a smart and thoughtful person was trying to think through the social and political challenges of his own time and place from a kind of freedom-centered and, and liberal point of view, um, it's a good document of what of the sort of state of play in 1861. Um, and then something 50 years later, um, L.T. Hobhouse, a less well-known book, just called Liberalism, which is a nice statement of the kind of social liberal position of the early 20th century. Uh, relatively short um, and um, very readable and I think very contemporary in a lot of ways. So that's for the kind of historians of political thought in the audience. And then for from a kind of more popular standpoint, two books I really liked and, and cite in my book um, – um, Adam Gopnik's book, um, A Thousand Small Sanities, is a nice, uh, Gopnik, as listeners will know, writes for the New Yorker, among other venues, and wrote a really wise, um, um, popular book about the kind of achievements of the liberal tradition and the value of liberalism in the kind of polarized political environment we find ourselves in. I found it a very congenial book. And then the historian Helena Rosenblatt um, has a book called The Lost History of Liberalism, which is a kind of more of an intellectual history um, overlapping in large part with what I do in chapter four of the book um, that starts as I do in the early 19th century and kind of shows um, the, the the common threads and the complexities of the liberal tradition um, as they work themselves out from kind of the early 19th century to the present day. That's no, a lot of recommendations. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate the, the, the pairing aspect of it. Um, you really um, uh, took that to heart. That's nice. Uh, so thanks so much for that. So uh, I mentioned uh, the epigraph uh, from uh, Lionel Trilling's The Liberal Imagination that you opened your introduction with. Um, that quote worked well uh, on a number of levels, and, and I wish there were time to talk a little a bit more about some of your other epigraphs as well. Uh, in lieu of, though, um, as a kind of epigraph uh, dedicated uh, to your open and thoughtful-minded approach uh, as evidenced, um, by the scholarship uh, in liberal freedom. I want to extend your trilling quote uh, from his 1950 preface, uh, uh, which reads, um, we cannot very well set about to contrive opponents who will do us the service of forcing us to become more intelligent, uh, who will require us to keep our ideas from becoming stale, habitual, and inert. This we will have to do for ourselves. Um, this is, uh, in part at least, uh, what I think you've done. And if there were a research gap for a kind of trilling requirement of overcoming stale ideas, then I think you've filled that gap uh, with your engaging approach uh, to reasserting freedom as the primary value of a, of a liberalism reconceived. Um, polarized times are not. Uh, uh, this book should be welcomed uh, by all parts of our uh, fractured uh, liberal polity in terms of, as your introductions, uh, trilling epigraph put it, in putting under some degree of pressure uh, these liberal ideas and assumptions of the present time. So my point is, I guess, that those interested in the history of political ideas 
and the concepts associated with liberty. And really cracking the code of liberalism would do well to pick up uh, Eric uh, McGilvray's liberal freedom, pluralism, polarization, and politics, published this year by Cambridge University Press. Professor Eric McGilvray, political scientist, theorist, and intellectual historian. Thank you for spending so much time with us. Um, it really was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Keith. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it.